Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Okay, so we're reading from Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the form of their garment and that fool touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest said. The priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mild dew and heal. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the wine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. Hey guys, good afternoon. My name is Maffy and uh, I've just realised that I have ended up preparing this talk with an extra verse added in. So that's going to be exciting in about 10 or 15 minutes time. So anyway, it's it's good to see you guys here. If you've just joined or or if you've just joined uh, since the start of the, uh, the service and you're really welcome. Um, this talk's going to be maybe 20 minutes long. We're going to sing a song and then that'll be our service over. So we're, we're in our third week of our four-week series called Whose House? As, as we take a deep dive into, into the book of Haggai, a short two-chapter book found near the end of the Old Testament. And if you were like me, you might have found it difficult to actually flick to get to Haggai at a stage. Whereas now, because the, the, the book has been looked at that much in the past three weeks, the Bible basically opens at Haggai. Anyway, this vision series is designed to help us consider what it is to focus our priorities on on the growth of God's church, on the the vitality of God's people, on the mission of God's heart. So perhaps today, uh, today's message can maybe be better titled, Whose Heart? And so the prophecy was was issued around the year uh, 520 BC, so 520 years before Christ. But, But to build in some context, we look at the when, the who, and the why. So for the when, in 536 BC, the, the work in the temple begins. The foundations are laid and there's a sense of hope, excitement, expectancy. However, the, the workers soon encounter a physical opposition from the Samaritans. Opposition that we, we might actually describe as layers upon layers of red tape is actually a scheme that the, that the devil used to wear them down, to dilute their zeal, to refocus their priorities away from God and onto themselves. And the who, if you fast forward 16 years from 536 BC to 520 to now, uh, the workers soon got discouraged. The building stopped and their focus shifted away from building the Lord's house onto their own houses. 
So what does God do? He sends Haggai to deliver four brief but super firm messages over a four-month period. So unlike many of the other prophets, Haggai wasn't addressing a rebellious, exiled people. Haggai was actually speaking to the right people, God's chosen people, in the right place, returned to Jerusalem, doing the right thing. They'd resumed some, some form of spiritual practice for the wrong reasons. Their compromise distorted their priorities. And you might ask why. And so the, the why can kind of be found in two different places. In Ezra 4, you can see there's a, an external opposition, the red tape, so to speak. As the foundations were being laid, it ran into physical opposition. Building project was halted. That's kind of the externals, but the internal opposition was a compromised heart, was a sin. So compromise and comfort had set in. God, God's people were contented with their own houses without concern for God's house. And so we'll see today that God wasn't as much concerned with correcting their practices as addressing their hearts. That's important. You know, that their spiritual poverty was as a result of neglecting the, the, the priorities of God. The neglect of the physical temple was actually symbolic of their own spiritual neglect. Yes, they'd returned to Jerusalem, but their hearts were still in exile. Yes, building the temple was important, but only as an overflow of a worshiping heart. And so the big idea today is that worship must originate in the heart and work its way to the hands. That's a big idea. Of, uh, of Haggai's four messages, the people responded so well to the first one and they resumed building the temple. That's great. However, rather than leaving them alone with the task of rebuilding, Haggai continued to preach to the Jews, encouraging them with, with the hope of a future glory in the temple, as per last week's message. And now, according to Haggai's third message, if the people would place God at the center of their lives, then they would realize the future blessings that God had in store for his people. There was a problem, however. Sure, they were getting on with rebuilding, but there was a resistance of the heart. So we've got Haggai's illustration here, which is verses 10 to 14. And we, we can see the resistance of the heart kind of begins here. And in the second chapter, Haggai begins dealing with some of the resistance among the people. Remember Monty's talk last week? The resistance was, was simply that the new temple wasn't going to be as good as the old one. In creating something new, the memory of what was loomed large in the back of their minds, large enough to keep them from moving forwards. So God's response was to encourage them to look at who you have, not what you have, promising blessings on them and pointing to a time in the future when the glory of his temple would be even greater than the, than the, the glory from the past. So guys, that was a resistance rooted in memory. Today he's dealing with a resistance rooted in wrong thinking, a resistance in the heart. So while the temple hadn't been completed, the people were not necessarily forgetting about their religious practices. One of the two leaders that Haggai consistently addresses in his prophecy is Joshua, the high priest. So they were doing the right practices, but they weren't giving them fully the place and importance that God wanted them to have. And so here, the third message, comes along two months after the building project had resumed. Why? Because there's still lessons to be learned. Will you look with me at verse 11? We look at 11 to 14. So let, let's say you've got this special meat and it touches some other type of food that's not been consecrated. Does that pass along its holiness to this other food? The priest answered, no, because it didn't. So each thing or person had to be consecrated individually. In other words, you couldn't be made holy 
on behalf of someone else. But on the other hand, if something had been defiled in some way, God uses the example of coming into contact with, with a dead body, which made one ceremony unclean. If it comes into contact with something else, can it spread its impurity? And the priests answered, yes, because it could. This is all based out of a, out of a passage in Leviticus 6, in which the, the Israelites would have known the law and, and so God is, is basically getting to turn to the law. Here's what Haggai is actually showing. Close contact with consecrated food does not make other food consecrated. But close contact with a defiled person makes the food defiled. Haggai's point is this. Good things do not automatically make other things good. But bad things do make other things bad. Because one, because one thing is pure, it doesn't actually make other things pure. But because one thing is impure, it does make other things impure. It's like putting a, a bad apple in with good apples. And, but why, why can't we get credit for what we're doing? God, we're doing our best here. Can, can we not get some credit for that? Yeah, sure, we, we're slacking off of that. But look, we're, we're back at it again. We're, we're doing the right thing. That's, some, that's sometimes how we think, isn't it? God, why are all these bad things happening to me? I mean, no, I'm, uh, I'm not perfect, but can I get, not get some credit for the good things I'm doing? God, I'm doing my best. Take it easier on me. Why don't you? Church, it fits with how we naturally think about how life should go, doesn't it? If I do good, then good should happen. And the good I do should actually act as a kind of covering for the bad, such that if the former outweighs the latter, then I can still expect good outcomes. <laughs> it's like me coming home from church and blatantly driving through a red light on, on the old Navin road and the guards see me and the guards pull me in and they're like son do you know why I pull you in and I'm like Mr or Mrs Anna Garda Shea I think you pulled me in because I went through that red light but but don't worry because I, I, had, I had a whole ton of other lights from Sing Street to here and I, I stopped at the red lights and I went through the green lights so kind of don't, don't really worry about that one that's not how it works. Sure, it's not. In this way, life kind of becomes a balancing act where if we slip up now and again, we can just do a few extra good deeds to keep ourselves covered. We can, we can tip the scales and kind of keep them tilted at least a little bit in our favour. Yeah, sure, God, I've neglected you a bit this year, but, but we're in a pandemic. At least I'm still turning up to church, right? Even though I'm not in a city group, I still turn up where it matters. Even though I'd rather be somewhere else right now, I still turn up to serve once a month. Guys, Haggai's application of this illustration comes in here in verse 14. And he says, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer is defiled. It's not that the people have never done anything good. They began to build the temple. That's great. They were bringing some sacrifices before God. That's also great. But no matter how worthy these things were, they came from impure hearts. Hearts more concerned for how it looks to others than worship to God. The evidence of the heart was worked out in what they did with God's house. They postponed the work in the temple. They prioritized their own comforts. They put their own needs before God's needs. They pushed back God's work to any time they kind of felt like doing it. It's important to remember that the deep underlying problem here was not their actions. Remember, they'd responded well. They'd, uh, they'd started to build again, but it was actually a problem of the heart. 
Guys, remember what Jesus said to the crowd in front of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Even just saying these words makes me cringe because that the Pharisees and the teachers overhear him saying this. He says, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of the mouth, that's what defiles them. And again, a few verses later in Matthew 15, he says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth comes from the heart and these things defile them. Guys, as I've said before, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. The origins of worship, therefore, isn't what we do, but the heart behind the action. So Haggai's application, that, that was his illustration. Haggai made this illustration for these guys, and then he goes on to apply it. And so we get this application in verses 15 to 19. And so I'm going to put this into, into four groupings. We've got the diagnosis, we've got the prognosis, the prescription, and the healing so if you're in any way medically minded, I'm doing this for you, Andrew. If you're in any way medically minded, then you're kind of going to get these four. The diagnosis, identify the problem by examining the symptoms. Haggai identifies the problem. He, he calls on the people to recognize just how bad life was when they neglected God. Look at verses 15 to 16 with me. Consider, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. Their harvest store fell constantly short of what they expected. God makes it clear it wasn't a, an accidental succession of bad harvests. It's not misfortune. Look at verse 17. God says, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and heal. God was disciplining his people. From that experience, they should have realized how much they failed to, to honor God. And they should have put it right, but they hadn't. Look at 17. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Haggai is saying, guys, look at your recent history. Diagnose the problem. What's the answer? Every year your supplies ran short because you neglected God. That's a diagnosis. Look at the prognosis. The prognosis forecasts a likely outcome and the chances of recovery. What's the prognosis for these people? God sends a strong message that, that nothing will be better unless there is real change. Look at 18 and 19. From this day on, from this day, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give uh, basically the 18th of December, give careful thought to this day when the, Lord's, the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate, olive have borne no fruit. Twice in one verse, God says, give careful thought. Look at the facts, in other words. Face reality. Don't you see God's discipline? Guys, if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. It might sound like a tongue twister, but look at it again. If you keep doing what you've always done, and you always get what you've always got. It'll be the exact same results. After all, is there any seed left in the barn? These are early days after they began the new phase of building, but they're still hungry. There's still no fruit. Why? Because their hearts were far from God. God withheld his blessing because he saw, he saw their motives and their hearts were laid bare before him. What's the warning on all this? There will only be a better future. If you're truly repentant, put God above all else in your lives. So that's a prognosis. That's kind of what it's going to look like. What's a prescription? The, the recommendation that's carried with authority. The pr prescription's simple. 
but it's really easily missed. Look at verse 17. God says, yet you did not return to me. In the first message, Haggai confronted the people with their compromise and their comforts. In the first message, but yet here he's exposing their motives. Return to God. The work of your hands ought to be an overflow of a worshipping heart. You see, Haggai's first message two weeks ago got the heart or got the hands working, but it's actually the third message that addressed their hearts. You know, God says to Israel through the prophet Joel, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. What he's saying is, I don't want your stuff as much as I want your hearts. Sure, they were building, but their hearts were far from God. The good that they did didn't cancel out the bad. The, the rebuilding didn't cover for their impure motives. What their labors offered was defiled. Yet the prescription is so simple, return to me. Maybe you've been turning up to church regularly. Maybe you've been giving some money to the church. Maybe you've been actively participating, but your heart's far from God. Guys, our prescription is Jesus. The one who can give us a new heart, reordered desires. The only one that can cleanse us from sin and bring any kind of lasting change. And all he asks for you and I is to come as we are. And let's look at the healing. You know, the last words from God through Haggai in a sermon are really wonderful. We actually didn't read these verses. But if you look in your Bibles at the end of 19, it says, From this day on, I will bless you. These are people who have experienced exile in another land. They're now home, but nothing has prospered. Throughout their lives, all they've ever known is God's judgment and God's discipline. But now God promises healing if they'll return to him. They were a defiled people. God had illustrated through Haggai that, that the good that they'd done in returning and starting to build a temple 18 years ago didn't cancel out their sinful hearts. Remember what I said? You couldn't be made holy on behalf of someone else. Israel and Judah could not keep God's covenant and they constantly fell short because their hearts were far from God's. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesied about a time when God will remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Jesus, God's promised one, establishes a new covenant where those who, who place their trust and their hope in him will, will receive a brand new heart. And this repentance is the very same as what Haggai is calling the people to. As a church, true repentance is not about behavior modification, but about life transformation. God actually replaces our old heart with his heart. He does a deep work in us that our hopes, our ambitions, our desires can be fully reordered for his glory. And here's the beauty in it all, guys. Jesus on the cross took our sin, took our shame. He bore the punishment we deserved. And instead, we got his beauty. We got his beauty, his righteous standing before the Father. We got his holiness. Under the old covenant, you couldn't be made holy on behalf of someone else. A sacrifice had to be offered. But yet under the new, we can be made holy on behalf of someone else. How? Because Jesus offered himself as that sacrifice. Cleansing us, presenting us as, a, as an unblemished people before God our Father. And I don't want you to miss this. That the true blessing does not mean that God will remove our problems, but rather that he'll grant his peace and presence in the midst of our problems. Remember, don't forget that these, these Jews were still under Persian rule. They were still surrounded by hostile nations. They were still just a small remnant in the land. 
none of them lived long enough to see God's glory rest on the, and, and God's glory rest on, on the humble temple in action in greater splendor than it did in the, in the, in the old temple, in Solomon's temple. John Calvin puts it into perspective. Read these words on the screen. It often happens that those who sincerely and from the heart serve God are deprived of earthly blessings. Wow. Why? Because God intends to elevate their minds to the hope of an eternal reward. Wow. So what does this mean for us all? What does this mean for Christ City Church during the second half of 2020? What does this mean for us as the second wave approaches as, as we enter into this level three? I want to suggest four really simple, brief applications. First one, seek God with sincerity. Is your eternal reward sweeter to you than the earthly blessing of Sunday gatherings in Sing Street? What's actually sweeter to you, the eternal reward that you're going to inherit, or is it the earthly blessing of, of Sundays in Sing Street? Are you okay with being deprived of earthly blessings during this time? And if not, is your service before God sincere and is it from the heart? Secondly, uh, find encouragement in the small. You, you not hear that often, or mentioned very often in church, but we're forced into being a smaller, more intentional church in this season. And so if our hearts aren't actually in tune with God's, then we run the risk of the very same risk of the same discouragement that we find here. And when discouragement sets in, it, it meets a spouse called apathy. And that discouragement and that spouse of apathy gives birth to a child called reordered priorities. And the remedy today is to give priority to the small, to our, to our city groups, to investing in the twos and threes, to practice in hospitality, to operate as a scattered community. Because, guys, I, I want you to be real clear here. Growing Christ City Church is not our priority. Raising up and equipping sons and daughters who will walk in society as the church, that's the real goal. That's the real priority. That's the real growth. Secondly, find encouragement in the small. Thirdly, regularly audit your heart. I don't know how often you do this. Sometimes we audit our finances. We, we, we audit our, our, our house. We, we audit um, different things. How often do we audit our heart? What do our everyday decisions reveal about our hearts? Do they suggest that the kingdom of God and his righteousness in our lives are our priority? Are we remaining true to the government guidelines? Or do we bend and take them with a pinch of salt so as to convenience ourselves? Do our dreams and desires revolve around our careers and our home comforts in this time of uncertainty? Or is concern for God's church, both as gathered and as scattered people taking precedent? You know, it's possible to be doing the right things, but not worshiping God. Yet when the heat comes, for, for the people of Judah, it was a lack of provision. For us, it's an increase of restrictions. When the heat comes, the true motives are discovered. So what does it look like uh, to, to build God's house in the twos and threes when we can't experience the larger gatherings? Can I encourage you to start with your own heart? Confess sin. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek his righteousness in your own life first and then reach out to someone. Each of us has a part to play. Uh, I guess, will we be consumers and suffer for a loss of physical service or will we be participators who count the cost, raise the challenge, seek God with the resources that we do have? 
Guys, if, if your worship is dependent on meeting in a physical building, then one, a diagnosis, there's a deeper heart problem. Two, your prognosis, it's not going to get any better. Three, a prescription, return to God with it. And four, the healing, witness his blessing as he unravels the heart issue to enable you to worship him in all circumstances. And, and finally, find a spokesperson. You know, perhaps you fall into the category of, 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 of doing without worshiping at times. And I want to encourage you, you're not alone. I've been there. It can become a ritual. And, you know, often it requires the right counsel to help steer us towards God. So that, so that once again, worship can begin in our hearts and manifest itself in our hands. But sometimes it requires counsel. You know, for those in Jerusalem, it took a prophet called Haggai to renew the interests of God in them. It took a spokesperson to renew their spirit. And I want to ask, who are the spokespeople in your life? Who can you be a spokesperson to? Who is God using in your life to spiritually tap you in the shoulder? You know, God will often use a disciple or a friend or an insightful person to massage a discouraged heart and a worshiping heart. You know, I'm going to pray now and then we're going to sing our, our, final, our final song. Just where you're at, I'd encourage you, uh, close your eyes, turn over your phone, step away from technology, from the screen for a moment. God, I pray that you would give each of us a heart for your house. Give us a heart for your house. Jesus, where we're at right now, I pray you'd reorder our priorities, reorder our desires, that as we step into this brand new week, that, that your concerns would be primary rather than ours. God, help us recognize what the resistances are in our hearts that distract the resistances that lead to compromise. And as you help us recognize these, I, I, I pray that Spirit of God, you would come, you would touch our hearts and enable us to, to rid ourselves of these resistances and to put our focus upon you. That our concerns would be primarily to build your house, to extend your kingdom, to see your righteousness in our lives rather than our own comfort, our own compromise and our own convenience. Jesus, I thank you that you are building your church and that the gates of hell will never overcome. That no matter whether we are at level five or level one or level three, Jesus, you continue to build your church. And so, Father, may we be a people that want to partner with you in what you're doing so that we can see our city and our nation one for you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Guys, we're going to sing our last song. It's called The Stand. You know, it's super appropriate. Let's, let's resolve to stand. Let's resolve to worship and to seek the, the glory of God in our lives and our city and in our nations. Amen. <laughs>